glad to see everybody here on this slightly colder than it has been uh, Sunday. Hope everybody's well. I had uh, an unanticipated uh, event this week on uh, Tuesday. Or no, no, actually it was Wednesday. Woke up to the sound of running water. Yes, when water shouldn't have been running. Because when it gets cold, you know, water expands, pipes freeze. That was, that was the bad, unexpected thing. It, it was actually a faucet in our greenhouse, and in the 11 years we've been in that house, that's never gotten cold enough to freeze. And so my first surprise was that that burst. My second surprise was discovering that when they had originally plumbed the house, they had not put a cutoff between that faucet and the well pump, so the whole house got to be without water. That was that was the downside. That, that was the, the unanticipated thing that was just not what I was expecting. The upside, though, was, though, when I pulled up the, the grates and got in at the plumbing, that it had all been done with PEX. And if you know anything about PEX, this is like the easiest stuff. So when I, you know, my day started with this horrible burst uh, faucet that I thought was going to take forever to take care of, and, and, you know, it was just, it was the work of like 10 minutes to put in a cutoff valve and just redo the PEX and just shut that off and not have to worry about it to spring. So sometimes things happen and they're much worse than you think, and then sometimes things happen and they just turn out to be a lot better than you thought going into the situation. You know, my favorite thing to say about scripture, right? Every time we come here Sunday morning, I'm like, there's a lot going on here. Well, that's because God is very skillful and the authors who he inspired to write scripture and the editors that he inspired to are also very skillful. So there's always a lot going on. I don't think after today I'm going to be able to say that again because the scripture we're going to look at today sets an entirely new standard for, boy, is there a lot going on. And one of the things, one of the things I love about the word is every time you go to it, when you first read it, and, and you have no expectations of it. You can get something out of it. You can read it. And, and it reads fine, and you will get a message from it. But the more you understand Scripture, the more you go back to it, the more levels just open up to you, the more you see things, and you're like, wow, this is much deeper than I ever realized. Today we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus, and hopefully you'll come away thinking, wow, that's a lot deeper. So if you'll join with me, if you'll turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. The account of the baptism of Jesus and then the temptation of Jesus. And we'll see how those two things form a complete picture. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized to you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, 
tell these stones to become bread? Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and, and their splendor. All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Well, in the beginning, we have a very specific statement here. We've got our first, from right off from our first verse, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, that may seem just like a description saying what's happening. Certainly the first time I ever read this, that kind of seemed like just a description, just telling me what's going on. But there's actually a lot of freight in that statement. This is a very specific appointment. In any town that had a synagogue, you would be able to be ritually washed. You could go, and as a matter of fact, that's standard for somebody coming into uh, the Jewish faith, would be to have that, that ceremonial washing and baptism. Um, so Jesus could easily have been baptized if all that was needed was baptism. He could have done it in his home synagogue. He could have done it back uh, in Galilee, could have done it in Capernaum. As a matter of fact, the jars that Jesus is going to turn the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, that's, what's in those, that's what those jars are for, is water for ceremonially washing. But there's something specific about what John's doing and John's mission that is going to fulfill God's plan in a way that just getting baptized in his hometown wouldn't. Now, one thing... Uh, all the eyes of uh, this particular region would be on this. We know that uh, John actually, from other accounts, we know John drew very large crowds. As a matter of fact, one of the things that uh, sometimes uh, people who are trying to argue against the significance of Jesus uh, will say is they'll point out that John, from all we know, drew far larger crowds than Jesus ever did. And I'd be like, you know, that's kind of funny, you know. How come this guy's got big crowds? You know, the so-called son of God doesn't. Well, crowd size is not a measure of truth. It's not a measure of significance. It's telling somebody else, and I think I shared this with Steve, somebody else was, one of my family members was talking to me about somebody who was a media person and said, well, you know, they, they must be right because they have all these followers. And I had to say, well, guess what public speaker had the largest crowds in Europe in the 1930s? 
Um, that's not necessarily a measure of truth or validity. But people will point to that and go, well, John, he had these massive crowds. We don't see that for Jesus. And God's doing different things. But at any rate, the eyes of the Middle East are on this area. So when Jesus goes there, he's going into, a, into what is actually going to be a, a public spectacle. The other thing is we are told earlier that John was preaching a baptism for repentance and the remission of sins. And that's going to be really important here in a second. John tries to deter him. He's saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why, why are you coming to me? Which is just a loaded statement. Because John is this prophet of God, this preacher of righteousness. When he's before the Messiah, all he can say is, I'm... I need to be baptized. I need my sins forgiven by you. Why do you come to me? And Jesus says, let, let it be so, because this will fulfill all righteousness. So John cons con uh, consents. Well, this is fulfilling God's plan. And here we're going to run up against a unique characteristic of Jesus because of who Jesus is. Because Jesus, he's identifying with us in this baptism, He's showing his humanity, but something always happens with Jesus because Jesus is both man and God. When things happen to Jesus, it gets turned around. John's baptism was for repentance and the remission of sins, and there is repentance and remission of sins, but... When everybody else was being baptized, and we get this, the, the Greek word underlying repentance here, metanoia, means to change your mind. So when the other people are being baptized, they are changing their mind. They are repenting of their sins and turning around. When Jesus is baptized, creation is turning around. Everything else is turning around him. It is for the remission of sins. It's for the remission of our sins. And you find this over and over again with Jesus when it looks like something in the world is acting on Jesus, it is actually Jesus acting on that in the world. It's as if he is this fixed point, and because he is God, he is so fixed that all of creation is just temporary and malleable around him. When the authorities crucified Jesus, Paul can turn it around and he says in Colossians, Jesus triumphed over the authorities in his crucifixion. They thought they were judging him and triumphing over him. But in reality, it was the powers and authorities themselves that were judged and put on display in Jesus' crucifixion. Again, the death of Jesus, biblically, what really died wasn't Jesus, it was death. So we'll find again and again, when things look like they're happening to Jesus. It's actually the rest of creation that's being reordered around him. So that's, that's what's going on here at this baptism. It is a repentance, but it is the repentance of creation, turning back to what it's been. Now, as, as we preach through the series of scriptures in the Old Testament up to now, I'm, I've always talked every time, just bring it back to the concept that this is a story about God's good creation and man's decision bringing that creation into decay, into disaster, and God's working to redeem it. And we've always talked about the story, the different steps God took 
to redeem that creation. And that's important because all these steps, all these things that have gone before are going to be summed up in Jesus here. Now, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending and alighting on him like a dove. There's a couple things going on here. One, can you think of somewhere else where we have the picture of water and the Spirit descending on the water? This is calling us back to Genesis. This is creation language. So in the baptism of, cre of Jesus, something new is happening. There is a new creation starting here. We're supposed to think back about Genesis. Think back about that original intention of God and see that what's going on here is not just the baptism of man, but it's the beginning of a new creation. Like a dove alighting on him. Think of another, can you think of another dove in the Bible? Story of Noah, Story of Noah exactly. The flood. This is bringing to mind that. It's saying that Jesus, and it's lovely this, Jesus is also, he's a new Noah because he's preaching repentance and he's preaching to flee the coming destruction, but he's also the ark. You know, Peter will tell us that our baptism into Jesus is like the water of the flood. So Jesus here is, he's calling us back to a new creation. He is being established as a more perfect Noah and as the ark that saves us. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And get this beautiful Trinitarian picture. This is everybody that preaches on this will talk about this. This is a great picture of the Trinity because you have in one scene, you have the son being baptized, you have the spirit marking him out, and you have the father proclaiming. So you have this complete picture of all of the Trinity acting at once. Now, it's interesting that this is immediately going to be followed by the temptation and the testing of Jesus. This is absolutely, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and he talks about, you know, some of the seed falls on rocky ground and birds come and eat it, and that is a parable about you receive revelation from God, and you receive the word from God, and the devil comes to try. Well, that's what the devil is trying here. This is going to be just an, a playing out of, of what Jesus warns about in that parable. So as soon as this has happened, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The wilderness, again, the original language here is, is talking about a barren place. It's also an echo of Genesis 2 when we get to the creation of Adam. And this is going to be the first part of this long narrative that's going to show us Jesus as a new Adam. So we have Jesus as the beginning of a new creation. We have Jesus as a new Noah. We have Jesus as a new, <clears throat> new ark. Um, and we're also going to have Jesus as a new Adam. And as we're going to see in a minute, a new Israel and a new Moses. Uh, that's why I say there's a lot going on in this one. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Important note here. This is not aside from God's plans. 
And he's not abandoned by God. He's led there by the Spirit. And we don't have any notion that the Spirit leaves him. So, you know, it can be, it can be, it can be tempting. It can be tempting when you're tempted. It can be tempting when you're tested to feel like you are abandoned by God. But you're not. We have that never leave you, never forsake you promise. So just because you're going through a time of temptation doesn't mean you've stepped out of God's will, that you've stepped out of God's care. It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's kind of a duh statement. But it's important. I mean, he is fasting 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is a common number used for, uh, for a period of trial in the, in the Bible, but it's also calling back Moses' fasting when Moses was with God on the mountain. So we're getting this, and we're going to see it more perfectly, uh, in that after this, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, begins giving new commandments. So this is also picturing Jesus as a new Moses. He's also going through a period of testing in the desert. It's also establishing Jesus as the beginning of a new Israel. It's kind of a new origin story. And the tempter says to him, if you're really the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And when I first read this, you know, when you're a very new believer and you read this, you think, well, of course, you know, if, if you're Jesus and the devil shows up next to you, you know, how hard can that be? You know, I mean, you, you know, like, you're the devil, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm not a dumb guy in a garden about to eat an apple. I know you. And then uh, a teacher pointed out to me that nowhere does it say that this was necessarily a visible appearance. And suddenly it's like, oh boy, it's much harder if you just have that voice in your head, and that is, for us, that's how the devil always comes to you, is your, like your own thoughts. It's, it's much harder to put things into perspective then. And look what he does. Jesus had just been proclaimed the Son of God, and he starts to question that identity. And that's always, like I say, always when you get revelation, the devil comes to question it, to question who you, what your identity is and, and what the Father's relationship is. But Jesus answered. He said, hey, man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will give you they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. He's not lying here. He's being deceptive. He's deceive, deceiving. But he's not lying. He's quoting scripture that is in Psalms. This is a great lesson on why it is important to know the whole story of scripture. Now, for a number of reasons, in, in this country, we we place a lot of emphasis on memorizing scripture. And there are good historical reasons for that. But one of the things that does is it causes you to focus on little pieces of scripture. 
And if you just know little pieces of scripture, it can be very easy to take them in a way other than they were first meant, other, other than they're meant to apply. And if you don't know the whole path of scripture, if you don't know the whole tendency of scripture, you can seize on a verse and, and apply it in a way it's not, not meant to be applied. And, and sometimes it takes, the, it takes the form of people really wanting to encourage you and wanting to say good things, but slightly misappropriating scripture. Classic example, everybody loves the quote from, from Jeremiah, you know, I know the plans I have for you, Lord. Absolutely, God, and, and we'll get it in Paul, you know, eye is not seen, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things God has for us. That is absolutely true. But that particular scripture right there is being given at a very specific time to people going into exile. And it's speaking to them. And, you know, it, it would not necessarily be appropriate for every Christian at every time. Certainly Paul... Um, as, as he's going to Rome, that probably wouldn't be a scripture he could claim because he is going to testify to God and he's going to die. Um, so even though he's a believer, that's not a scripture that's going to apply to him at that time. So it's very important to know the story and the flow and the whole, the whole story of scripture. Otherwise, you can seize on things that sound very good. Like this is, that's actually a really good promise of God's protection for us. You know, he'll give you angels. But Jesus also knows you're not supposed to test God. That is God's promise to you that, hey, you're in my hands. I love you. I will take care of you. But you're not supposed to test God. So Jesus is able to answer him there. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. This is, again, a classic example of the temptations the enemy offers us being cheap versions of things we already have. You know, the, t the temptation to Adam and Eve, you know, hey, if you, you eat this, it'll open your eyes, and you'll, you'll know good and evil, and you'll be like God. Well, God already made them as his image, and he was already there to tell them perfectly good and evil. It was a cheap substitute. And this is this is the devil saying to Jesus, look, son of God, you know, through, through you all things were made and nothing was made that wasn't made through you. You know, the galaxies, the farthest edges of the universe, the subatomic particles, well, I don't know if he knew about those. You know, you maintain every one of them in their orbit. But hey, if you follow me, I'll give you New Jersey. <laughs> you know, it's a cheap it's a cheap substitute. And Jesus knows it. And he says, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the, devil's left, then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. So much of our lives are like this. We get into the word, we get excited we receive revelation through the study of the word, and we go away. And if we don't immediately put it into our hearts, if we don't meditate on it, we're going to have these kind of attacks. Is that really what God said? 
does that really mean that? You know, I know this is I know this is what Scripture says about people that believe, but come on, we both know you. You know, we know you know, and, and, you know. And uh, we have, unfortunately, not only do we have the devil, the devil, we also have the flesh. And um, you get this great promise, you know, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Your flesh, not so much. It's with you all the time. And it can just be like, you know, you resist the devil and he goes away. You resist the flesh and it's like, are you sure? But God's word is full of wonderful things. And as we pursue it, he speaks to us in wonderful ways. We need to take that and make it our own. Bring it back again and again to our remembrance. I was just reading this, this great meditation earlier this week on what it meant to a Hebrew to remember. Because they would always remember the stories of God. And to them, remembering is not just bringing back to your memory the story that has happened, but it's also calling from that like when you remember the story of God's deliverance, you're actually calling, it's a form of prayer, bringing that forward into the present. So when you remember the deliverance from Egypt, you're, you're bringing that forward and asking God to do that same thing again now, um, which gives wonderful meaning to uh, Jesus, uh, his last supper, when he tells him, as long as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. You're bringing the knowledge of his sacrifice forward and applying it to your life right then. So as we, as we receive revelation from God, as we receive understanding from God, it's important that we mull it over and bring it back to our memories again and again because as sure as anything, the biggest revelations are, are followed by bursting pipes, kids getting sick, car breaking down. And it's a challenge to keep those things from stealing the revelation. And if it if the Son of God was not spared that kind of attack, we shouldn't, shouldn't expect that we would be. Um, one of the things that God uses to speak to me a lot is music. I, I love, I've always loved music. And uh, I, have, I have a very favorite Christian uh, songwriter named uh, Terry Taylor. And he wrote this wonderful song called I'll Get Over It. And... The whole purpose of the song is he talks about having these great experiences with God. He's like, you know, I had this great, but I'll get over it. And um, <laughs> that's life. You know, we'll have, we'll just have a great time in the Word, receiving revelation. But if we're not careful, we'll get over it. Um, how, how many times have you just been in fellowship at church on Sunday morning? just really felt like God was speaking to you. And then somebody with a license plate from a state to the south pulls right in front of you on the highway and immediately challenges that revelation of God placed in your heart. So bring it back to your remembrance. And remember that at this time, the world changed. In the baptism of Jesus... Everything changed in the world. But right after that, the devil came to try and make him forget it. Well, because everything changed in the world, every week 
we remember kind of the climactic act of that. So here in a second, we're going to come to the table, or the table will come to you. 